0: Good morning. My name is Gary, and I am privileged to serve here as the pastor at Southside, and I'm so grateful that you have uh, made time to be with us this morning for worship. And uh, if you're new to Southside, we want to extend a special welcome to you. Uh, We are... We've begun several weeks ago studying through the Gospel of John together. And we'll be in John chapter 2. We started chapter 2 last week. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and begin to find your way to John chapter 2, verse 13. It'll also be on the screens and there are Bibles provided in front of you. And as you're finding your way there, let me just give you a little bit of background about your Bible. Uh, Your Bible is a unique book. It's not really even a book. It is a library. Uh, The Bible has 66 books in it. And uh, the, it's of course divided between the Old and the New Testament, and the New Testament begins with four books that we call Gospels. This is a unique form of literature. It's got a little bit of uh, a little bit of biography in it, in that it tells us the story of Jesus, but it also gives us the teachings of Jesus, uh, and it tells us the impact that Jesus had in his world with those around him, and then immediately after him, and really even up to present and beyond. It's a very unique, they're very unique forms of writings, and the first three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are often called the synoptic Gospels. Everybody say synoptic. Now, what that means is that those three tend to work together. They tend to follow the same storyline. John is a little different. John wrote his gospel much later than the first three, and having the benefit of, of the first three gospels, John said, well, you know, when I write this, I don't have to repeat everything the other three said. Those stories have been told. So John's perspective and John's take on the life and teachings of Jesus, is, is a little different. He organized it a little differently. It's more thematic. It, 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 it is, the purpose of the gospel is for us to believe, to read these stories, and to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing that we would have life and have eternal and abundant life. So when you read the stories of Jesus, you will read different stories in the four gospels. Some stories are repeated. Uh, Some are in three, but not in the fourth. Some are in all four. Some are just in one. Uh, Last week, we read a story from John chapter 2, Jesus turning the water into wine. That story only appears in the Gospel of John. It does not appear in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This week, we're going to be looking at another familiar story for many of us when Jesus cleansed the temple. It does appear in all four Gospels, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke place the story at the end of Jesus' life. So they have it right before his arrest and trial and crucifixion. John places it at the beginning of the story. And some have speculated why the difference. Some have said, well, John simply took the story and placed it early in the account. He didn't claim to be writing a chronological uh, account of the life of Jesus. So maybe John just located it early. Others have said, and I agree with this group, that actually it's likely that Jesus did this twice. That at the beginning of his ministry coming into Jerusalem, he cleansed the temple. And then again, towards the end of his ministry, right before his arrest, he repeated the actions. So uh, whichever you believe, uh, we are going to look at this story today and ask ourselves, what does this story teach us about Jesus and what does it teach us about the church today? So if you have your Bible, John chapter 2, let's begin to look in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, already we know something very important. The timing of this event was at the Passover. The Passover was and is the highest of all Jewish holidays. It was the launch of the Jewish nation. It was the event where God delivered his people from their slave masters in Egypt. And to do that, there were a series of plagues, the last of which was that the death angel came to Egypt... And all the firstborn in all the homes were, were killed. They died. Except for anyone who was in a house that had sacrificed a lamb and taken the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost. And if the death, when the death angel came to Egypt that night, if there was the blood of a lamb on the doorpost, the death angel passed over that house. And so this Passover lamb had become an important part of the Jewish celebration of the Passover feast. So every time there was a Passover celebration, there would be sacrifices involved in that. And in this time, when the temple existed, people were uh, encouraged and required to bring their sacrifices to the temple, to the priests in the temple to make their offering. So Jesus was doing what was customary. This would have been an annual event. But we also know something else about Jesus from chapter 1, that John the Baptist is the first to identify Jesus as the Messiah. And he does so by saying, behold, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. John is making a connection between Jesus and the sacrificial Lamb of Passover. John is saying, this is the Passover Lamb. His blood will provide the escape. His blood will provide the salvation For mankind, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem. And in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. And the money changers were sitting there. Now, you need to understand something about the architecture of the temple. If you could imagine concentric circles, the architecture of the temple was similar to that. And that it pointed toward the hierarchy of the religious structure. The further away from the center of the temple, the the more access people had. So in the outer courts, the courts of the Gentiles, anybody was welcome to come in. Uh, You could all come into this part of the temple. And then the next part was reserved just for Jewish men. And then the next part was reserved for the priestly class until finally you got to the very center of the temple, which was called the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest was allowed into the Holy of Holies. What what we're reading here with the selling of the cattle and the sheep and the money changing is all taking place in the outer court, the, the place of the Gentiles. This is the place where everybody was welcome and everybody was allowed in. And it was really an issue of convenience. The religious leaders were were seeking to find ways to make the religious practices and the religious festivals accessible to everybody. So people would travel from great distances. And perhaps they didn't want to bring their ox with them. And so rather than bringing their ox all the way across the country, they would just buy an ox in the temple. Or if they brought a sheep with them and they would come, if the sheep was defective in any way and was the priest said, hey, this sheep, you know, is not... Not, doesn't quite reach the standard to be an, a, a sacrifice, but for your convenience, we have provided some sheep herders out in the lobby, and you can go out and for a small price, you can purchase a sheep that does meet our standards. So this was the practice, and it was all in the name of convenience. We want to we make this religious experience convenient for you. We want to make it accessible for everybody, and by the way, because we know many of you are coming from foreign countries, and you probably have foreign currency with you, which we don't accept, but for a small charge, we can exchange your money for you this is a good deal and we can exchange your money for you and then you can buy the required sacrifice so that you can go on and and meet the requirements of the religious festival so this was all done in the name of convenience and it had been done for years this was not a new idea in the Jewish temple Jesus had probably seen this going on on trips before even as a boy when he would come to Jerusalem with his family this was nothing new verse 15 and making a whip, of cords, he, Jesus, meek and mild, sweet little Jesus boy, drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen. Now, I, before we just rush past this verse, I want you to think about the, in your mind what this must have looked like. Jesus coming in with a whip, have you ever seen an ox running? I mean, it must have been complete and total pandemonium. Animals are running everywhere. The people who own the animals and are trying to sell them are are chasing them. They're all running out of the temple And, and this is happening all during this religious festival with people from all over the known world gathered and pandemonium is erupting and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and he told those who sold the pigeons, because those are especially troubling, the pigeon sellers, take these things away. And then he said this do not make my father's house a house of trade now it's interesting because this is a very short phrase and and we there were lots of other things Jesus could have said maybe maybe we even think should have said about the corrupt practices that were going on but Jesus doesn't say that He doesn't condemn them for corruption. He doesn't claim that they're embezzling money. He never makes those claims. Instead, it seems that Jesus is condemning not just the buying and selling of these items in the lobby of the temple, but he's, he's condemning the entire sacrificial system. And he's proving himself to be a real threat to the priestly order. So what's the problem? Why did this make Jesus so angry? Weren't the religious leaders simply trying to make it convenient for those coming to worship? I think it comes in what he, the contrast he makes there at the end of verse 16. Notice what he says. He says, this is supposed to be my father's house, but you've made it a house of trade. In other words, this is supposed to be a place where you come and connect with God, where you have communion with God, where you're gathered with God's people. And by the way, it's not your house It's not the high priest's house. It's my father's house. Instead, you're making it a house of trade where you are trying to profit off those who would come in under the hospitality and graciousness of my father. It's supposed to be my father's house. You're making it a place of profit. To which many of us who've heard this story or read it before have perhaps struggled with the idea, okay, so are we allowed to sell anything in church? I mean, just on a really practical level, what does that look like? Is Jesus somehow condemning any form of financial transaction inside of the religious organization or institution? Some have thoughts, though. Some have read this and, and felt that that is exactly what Jesus is saying. But I think that that doesn't really get at the heart of what is happening in this story. We know, if you read down in verse 25, we know that John tells us, That Jesus knows the heart of every man. He knows what's in their heart. And so looking at this situation where the religious establishment is buying and selling sacrificial animals and changing monies in the name of making it convenient, in the name of giving people greater access to God, but Jesus knows what's really in their heart. And Jesus challenged the religious institution and the religious leaders over and over again on this same issue. Listen to what he said talking to religious leaders in Luke chapter 16, beginning in, uh, in, verse, in verse 13. He said, he said this. He said, you cannot serve two masters. You're gonna hate one and love the other or you're gonna be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and what? Money. He's talking to religious people. On another occasion in, uh, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 25, he he tells the Pharisees, he says, woe to you Pharisees, you look great on the outside. You put on all the religious airs, you wear all the right kinds of clothing, it looks great, but on the inside your heart is full of greed, he said. Mark chapter 7, talking to the Pharisees, he said, you know what, you guys, you Pharisees, you tell people that they don't have to obey the fifth commandment. What's the fifth commandment? Honor your father and mother. Part of honoring your father and mother was providing for them and caring for them in their old age. But here's what the Pharisees told the people in Jesus' day. He said, you don't really have to do that if instead of giving the money to care for your parents, if you just give that money to us. Just give that to us in the temple. And then God is pleased with that. Your mom and dad can take care of themselves. God will provide for them. But what really was that about? It was really about the greed of the religious leaders. Luke chapter 20, verse 46 and 47. Jesus accuses the Pharisees of devouring the houses of the widows. So what's happening here? Jesus is looking at the heart. He's not just looking simply at the fact that they were trying to, they were claiming they were going to make uh, religious religion more accessible. They were gonna provide these sacrifices. After all, it makes sense what they were doing. It's practical. It's useful even. But Jesus sees beyond the surface, and he sees down to their heart, and he sees what's really happening. That religion was a cover for greed. That a display of religious helpfulness was used for personal gain. That greed was cloaked in religion. Boy, aren't we glad that Jesus put an end to that in this story. And that that doesn't happen anymore. Never since then has the religious institution or a religious leader used religion as a cloak for their own personal greed or profit. Can I just remind you that today the p- folks who don't come to church one of the number one reasons people will say they don't participate in religious organized religion or religious institutions is because they believe all the church wants is their money. Money. And if you're here today, and that's been part of your hang-up about organized religion and churches, can I just say Jesus agrees with you in this story. He sees that as a real problem. And I don't think it was a problem that ended after this event. Clearly, it may have happened again three years later when Jesus went back to Jerusalem. He says, my father's not being worshipped here. I don't know what's going on here in this court. I know what you say it's about, but I know what it's really about. You're not worshiping God. You're worshiping money here. Verse 17, his disciples remembered what was written. Zeal for your house will consume me. Now, what are they doing? They're probably hiding in the corner, afraid, hey, you know, we don't want to get in any trouble with the religious establishment, but they remember a prophetic statement from the Old Testament, and they say, hey, this guy might be the Messiah, Because obviously zeal for his father's house is consuming him. Now listen to what the religious leader said. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Notice they don't argue with the point Jesus is making. They don't even argue with what Jesus did. Why is that? I think it may be because somewhere inside they already knew that what they were doing was corrupt. They already knew that their motives were distorted. So they're not questioning what Jesus is saying. They're not even questioning what Jesus is doing. Instead, they try to deflect the issue away from their heart and onto something external. Who gives you the right to do this? Not that it shouldn't be done. Not that we shouldn't be called out on it. But who gives you the right? What sign will you show us in order to prove that you have the right to do this? Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, Jesus told them that a wicked and adulterous generation will ask, asks for a sign. But then look what he does. In verse 19, he offers them one. Listen to this. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now this is rich. There's, there's a number of meanings here. There are layers of meaning in what Jesus is saying. And I'm not sure that those who were listening to him understood all the meanings that were there. Even John, who's writing this, says he only stood, understood the whole thing later on, years and years later. But listen to what he's saying on, on one hand. On one hand, he's saying, you're asking me for a sign. Okay, I'll give you one. He's calling their bluff. Destroy this temple and I will build it back. I'll perform that sign. Now, do we think that if they had literally destroyed the temple, Jesus could have raised it back in three days? Uh, He raises people from the dead. I have no trouble believing he could have raised the temple back in three days. But he said that knowing they would never do it knowing that they would never destroy the temple. Because in fact, they had shifted their worship away from the God who was supposedly housed into the temple onto the temple itself. It had become the centerpiece of their worship. It had become idolatrous to them. They were never going to destroy that. Actually, look what they said. It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? We've been in a 46-year building campaign for this. We're not going to tear this thing down. What are you thinking about, Jesus? There's no way. But there's another level to what Jesus is saying. Jesus invites them to destroy the temple themselves. Now, now remember with me to the trial of Jesus. It's, It's a couple years away from where we are in the story. But Jesus is accused of saying that he would destroy the temple. Do you remember that? That's one of the reasons they crucified him. They said, this man has claimed that he would destroy the temple. But if you read this in John, Jesus never said that he would destroy the temple. Who did he invite to destroy the temple? He invited the religious leaders to do it. And I think part of the reason he was inviting them to do it is because they were already destroying it with their practices. By the things that they were doing, they were already destroying the worship of God in that place. And they had done it before. These were the very practices that God condemned in the Old Testament, and the temple had been destroyed twice for this kind of stuff. And Jesus is saying, and you're doing it again. You're doing it again. And do you realize that within one generation of Jesus' death, that very temple would, in fact, be destroyed? Never to be rebuilt. That this was. This was part of what Jesus was saying. You are already destroying the temple by your actions. But there's something else that he's saying here. Look what, look what it says in John chapter 2, verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and that they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. See, Jesus wasn't talking about the building at all. John said, we only realized this years and years later. It was only after the resurrection we were all sitting around talking and all of a sudden the light went off. Hey, you guys remember when Jesus went in with the whip and drove all the oxen, the sheep out of the place? Remember what he said, destroy this temple, I'll build it back in three days? I think I know what he was talking about. He wasn't talking about the building, he was talking about... Himself, He was saying that the same kind of greed, the same people whose hearts were full of greed, who were destroying worship in the temple, would be the same people who would destroy him, who would crucify him. You'll kill me, but I will be raised back to life. This goes along with what Jesus told the religious leaders. They didn't like it when he said this either. In Matthew 12, 6, I tell you something, someone greater than the temple is here. Jesus was talking about himself. This building is nothing but brick and mortar and stone. But I have come that you might have connection with God. It's not about this place where you come to worship. It's not about the sacrifices you're making. It's about the sacrifice I will make. And so the disciples came to believe and understand what it was that Jesus was talking about. It wasn't about the building. It was about his body that would be offered for them. Now, I, I want to I talk to you about this passage just uh, for a few minutes because this is really an important passage for us as the church. Uh, I, I think it's one that's familiar and so many times we might just blow past it and think we understand what it's saying. We understand what Jesus is talking about. We've heard it over and over again. But if you're here and you love the church and you would say, I'm committed to the church, I, I, I believe in the church. I think this says something really important to us. And if you're here and you're sort of on the outside looking in, uh, you you need to hear this as well. Because this story, I think, really speaks and resonates to me. You know, many times when we, as a church, teach through the scriptures, there are, there are words of encouragement that come that, the, the, the bible's it's like a it's like a sword that pierces our hearts you know the, those things that come out and it's sort of an offensive but other times the scripture is like a mirror that we hold up and we may or may not like what we see in the mirror and being one who has worked in churches uh, making my living feeding my family for 20 years in the church this passage was a real uh, a real eye opener for me a real challenge for me because i I live off the generosity of people coming. I could very easily be one of those people in the outer courts, selling cattle and sheep, changing money. We as an organization could be those people. What does this passage say to us? Let me share with you three things that I believe the Lord laid on my heart about this passage that are really important. The first thing is this. Jesus is not impressed with buildings and bloated budgets. He's not. I mean the temple was something to behold. I mean there was a time Solomon's temple was one of the seven wonders of the world and this was built after the likeness of that. I mean it was bedecked, bejeweled, bedazzled. I mean it was amazing, it was spectacular. Jesus didn't seem very impressed with the building. And, and as far as organized religion and the business plan, I mean they they had it. They had it set up. I mean they were making money and supporting the temple. They, they, they had had this working for years and years, and even generations had gone by, and this had been happening. And they, their budget, I'm sure, for, for First Temple Jerusalem was incredible. They probably had a surplus every year I, I, from the way it looked. Jesus actually seemed to think that was a problem for them. Do you realize that in America today, that American Christians make up only 5% of the church worldwide? So in the United States, those who are Christians, who, who, who not just say they're Christians, but actually go to church and actually participate in religious activities, it's about 5% of the worldwide Christian population. Do you know that 5% controls more than half of the wealth of, of Christians worldwide? Half. And so you think, well, okay, the American church is rich. American church is where all the money is. God has blessed the Christians in America, and he certainly has. So they must be the most generous Christians in the world, you would think. Do you know that the average Christian, now if you're not a Christian, you're not a churchgoer, I'm not talking to you, but do you know that the average Christian who says they believe this book, who says they believe in the church, who said they're engaged in the mission, the average Christian gives away less than 2% of their income. Less than 2%. And that's not just to the church. That's at all. That's to the Red Cross. That's to the United Way. That's to the Salvation Army. That's to their local congregation. That's to the private school they support. They give away less. The average American Christian gives away less than 2% of their money. And so you go to the local Christian church in America. And you hear people doing what I do who will sometimes talk about money, and when they talk about money, they always say, well, you should tithe. In other words, we say the Bible says you should give how much? 10% of your money. And we say that, and people, people preach it from pulpits. And so you'd think, okay, well, then, then as an organization, as an institution... Surely those pastors who are standing up before congregations who are saying you should give 10%, surely they're leading the organization that they are in charge of to give away 10% of its money as an organization to causes of mission around the world, to selfless causes. But do you realize the local church in the United States only gives away about 2% of the money that they collect? Isn't that interesting? That the church only gives away the same amount that the Christians that go to that church give to them. Which means, track with me here, that we give 2% of 2% outside of the American church. 2% of 2% of the wealthiest Christians in the world who have ever lived in the world is given away to causes outside of the local congregation and the local community. What, What would happen if every church gave as much money away as they expected their people to give to them. Could you imagine? I mean just dream with me for a second. And if you're if you're here, if you're here and you're not a member, you're not a Christian, don't don't get your checkbook out. I'm just talking I'm just talking to those of you who say, I'm, I'm in. This is me. This is I believe in this. Okay, I'm just talking to you. If every one of us gave 10% of our money to the church and then the church that we gave it to gave 10% of the money they collected away to causes outside of themselves, here is the conservative estimation of what could happen. This is by secular financial folks and by uh, religious financial folks. It's, It's easily, this is what could happen. First of all, every person who's being traded in human trafficking as slaves could be redeemed. Every one of them. Second, World hunger could be totally eliminated. Third, we'd still have enough money left over to provide clean drinking water to everybody on the planet. And there'd be money left over after that. Now, just imagine with me what would happen in the Middle East today. If Christians, I'm not talking about non-Christians, I'm not talking even about marginal Christians. I'm just talking about you who say, I'm in this. If every Christian in every church just did that, could you imagine the radical impact it would have on the world? People would be laying down their arms and running to their local church and saying, could you please tell me what it is you believe? Because it's radically transforming our world. And we want to be a part of that. Could you imagine? Jesus is not impressed with buildings and bloated budgets See, the temple was only a temporary placeholder. The the, the temple was something that would be there and Jesus already knew it was going to be gone. Do you know this building stands here on this corner, has stood here for, for many, many years, but do you know one day it will be gone? It will not be here anymore. What will be left of the movement that we claim to be a part of when it's gone? Second thing I think this passage teaches me is that Jesus does not like it. When we prioritize profits over people, we have some pictures here. I want to show you. Some of you will be familiar with this building. It's the Crystal Cathedral, uh, built in Southern California in 1968. It was spectacular. Is spectacular a piece of architecture? It was a house of worship. Uh, The founding pastor Robert Schuller built it to the glory of God. The church had uh, tremendous ministry and impact. Uh, worldwide even through their television and radio ministry. And do you know in 2010, the Crystal Cathedral stopped paying for dozens of maintenance workers because they couldn't afford to pay them anymore to maintain that huge facility. The facility began to fall into disrepair. The financial troubles continued. By 2011, they couldn't pay their janitors anymore. And shortly thereafter, they filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Beautiful building, supposedly built for the glory of God, and they couldn't pay the bills. Robert Schuler, the founding pastor, said that their financial survival, listen to this, depends upon new people joining, making commitments, and becoming members of this ministry by their financial support. By his own admission, Schuler says that their failure to make converts led to their financial collapse. Now, please hear me say this first. Um, I know that many people have been blessed by the ministry of Robert Shuler and the Crystal Cathedral. Many of you in here may have been blessed by that. I have no doubt. And I have no doubt that Robert Shuler has a heart to see people, one, for the gospel, to hear the message of Jesus Christ. I have no doubt about that. But I want you to listen to what he said when it came to the financial collapse Of this organization. He said, We need to reach people, disciple people, get them committed so that they'll give money to support this. See, underneath that, the real motivation was we need more people to pay the bills. I I think this is how it starts. This is how the church begins to to veer away from its mission and become self-centered and begin to focus on things that God didn't intend. And they begin to prioritize profits over people. And Jesus doesn't like it. Listen to what Alan Nelson said. The church's greatest value is to develop people, not recruit people to develop the church. This is part of what made Jesus so enraged because there was a world gathering, coming to the temple, who were far from God, and they would come, and the only thing the religious people saw were dollar signs in their eyes. They didn't see the brokenness of humanity. They didn't understand the heart of God. They were moved by greed, by a greed that... Sure, they claimed that it propped up the temple and they claimed it propped up their religious organization. But Jesus wasn't impressed with those things. Jesus' heart was for people. Which led me to the final idea that I think is so important. And that is this. Jesus doesn't like it when we put a cover charge on the kingdom. Which is exactly what they were doing. If you don't have enough money, you don't dress right. You don't bring the right gift, the right quality of gift. Well, I'm sorry. I think we're full today. I'm not sure we have any more room. And so the poor and the needy would come into the temple and they may or may not get the place, a a good place. But somebody came in whose pockets jingled and who was dressed right and the dollar signs flashed in their eyes. Jesus doesn't like it when we put a cover charge on the kingdom. What infuriated Jesus about this is that he understood the price that would be paid in order for people to have access to the Father. He came to pay it himself. See, the Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That, it, that salvation is a free gift of God. It's not accomplished by works or by the money you give. It's free. How dare religious people put a price tag on it? When you get to heaven, the book of Revelation says the gates of heaven are wide open, implying that all who would come may enter in. Who are we to charge admission? As I wrestled with this for the last three weeks, I suddenly uh, became convicted. You know, it's, it's one thing for me to call out a, a famous church in the United States. I mean, they're bigger. They got more money. They went into more debt. So it's easier for me to cast stones. And, of course, I thought that was ironic. He who lives in a glass house should not cast stones. But I, I thought about it. I, I thought, okay, well, I need to be careful here because I, how do we, what are we doing as a church? I mean, I can't with integrity stand up and ask people to give 10% if our organization itself doesn't give 10% away. That seems hypocritical to me. That seems to feed right into the problem that was going on in John chapter 2. And so I, I called uh, the folks who work in, with our finances, and I said, hey, I need a couple numbers from you. And I really hope they couldn't get it together for me before today's sermon, but they did. I said, I need a couple numbers. I just need the number. I need to know every dollar that we brought in last year in 2014, every dollar. Whatever it was for, just every dollar that came in. And I want to know every dollar that we gave away, that it had nothing to do with us, it had nothing to do with the ministry of Southside Baptist Church, it had nothing to do with programs of Southside Baptist Church, it had nothing to do with staff of Southside Baptist Church. I just want to know two numbers what did we bring in and what did we give away? And then I just know just enough math that I can figure out the percentage. And when I ran the numbers, all totaled, Southside, you, you give away from this church more than 10% of what's taken in away from this building, away from our ministries, away from our programming. And I thought, I'm so, whew. (laughs) (laughs) So, Jesus gave everything. He gave it all. He gave it all that we might come freely to him. And my question to you, Southside, is are we willing to give everything we have to communicate the free gift of God found in Jesus Christ? God's not going to be impressed with our buildings although i think they're impressive god's not going to be inc- impressed with our financial reports although i'm grateful for our financial reports god prioritizes people over profits do we do you this is important May we, his church, get it right. And for those of you who are on the outside looking in, can I just tell you, regardless of what you've heard, regardless of news reports, regardless of other ministries, other churches, you are welcome here. You are free to come here. We don't want anything from you. Instead, what we want for you is a relationship with Jesus Christ who came to give you eternal life. Will you pray with me? Father, we are just moved, stirred by the truth of your word in this story that we read from John chapter 2, Jesus' actions in the temple. Father, we're convicted, we're motivated. Lord, may we understand the importance you place on people. And may we place similar importance on people. Father, may we be good stewards of what you've entrusted to us to leverage it, to communicate the love of Christ to a world that's hungry and thirsty for that love. And Father, it's overwhelming because we're just one church in one city in one country. But Father, I believe you can can change things. You can change the church in America. If you just find churches that are willing to step up and, and say, we'll join the cause. Lord, may, that, may it begin with us and may it sweep over our country. Father, forgive us for our greed. Forgive, forgive the church in America for, for not being generous the way you've been generous. And Father, while the window of time is still open, may we reprioritize what we have valued. And by doing so, Lord, we long to see Those who are hungry and thirsty and weary come to the only one who can meet their needs and who does so freely. Father, if any of those are here today and they have felt like there's been a cover charge on the kingdom, may today they hear the words that it's free to all who would come. May they respond to the invitation to the free gift of God found in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.